Should I give myself a countdown then? <laughs> Three, right. two, one, go me. G'day, mate. This is uh, Andrew coming to you here from Down Under. Uh, no, I'm actually not that apologetic for this weekend's poor performance, but this is Andrew from the ERB pod, and we're back with another week's episode featuring... Uh, Myself, Ant, and Phil. Uh, let's check in with my co-hosts. How's it going, Ant? Yeah, very well, thanks. Um, not sure if the 7.30 kickoff meant that my Saturday was more or less ruined, um, but it's been at least a couple more hours by now to kind of digest and get some of the emotion out of the way. Yeah, some perspective, everyone. We were recording this on Sunday evening, so the wounds are still slightly fresh, uh, or fresher than they would be on our Tuesday uh, regular recordings, uh, and we're going to throw it to Phil now. Phil, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, all things considered. Um, try to forget about the game yesterday as much as I could, but um, thinking about it again today and all its low points, but we'll get into some of the yeah more touchy stuff in a moment, I'm sure. So would you say you're being philosophical? Yeah, always. Huh? That's <laughs> my go-to. Uh, someone's got to say. Uh, all right, so we're going to just get through a couple of very brief news items before we get to what everyone's probably listening for, which is the dissection of yet another Springbok loss in Australia. Um, The first one is something around eligibility. A couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion around uh, the word coming out of the Italian camp that a whole lot of their players are ineligible uh, or have been ineligible, yet they are playing for Italy. And that obviously has repercussions or parallel issues with the disqualifications for the World Cup that's coming up um, for Spain. Uh, This week we had Tawira Kerbalo, a famous New Zealand player who played for the All Blacks I think something like 26 times, um, was a stalwart in the club system as well and he's now said that he's eligible for Australia which was his country of birth. Um, we're probably not going to go too much into this now. We'll probably park it for another day, but just interesting to see that uh, it's probably the first instance, and, and uh, I know you've got some feelings around this, that a, a first-tier nation uh, representative has said that they are willing to come out for another first-tier nation. Um, so we've had in the past players like Israel Falau, uh, Malachi Fekitoa playing for Tonga, um, yeah, just just briefly, and um, your your spicy take on this before we move on. Yeah, I think I suppose we'll park this for for another time, so it won't get too involved. But I mean, I, look, I fundamentally don't like the rule in general. Um, like, I think it's it's very one-sided into to who it benefits, um, which is essentially the Pacific Islands, and it, all it does is just creates a bigger gap between the others, like nations that are working very hard, um, tier two nations work very hard to try and develop players with their own systems such as like Chile and Argentina, other than Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, you know, those types of countries. So I'm not a fan of it in general, but, you know, to, to play for the All Blacks in a World Cup final and then, you know, a couple of years later be like, because you're out the system, be like, oh, yeah, I'll just throw my hat into the ring for another country, you know, kind of just defeats the entire point of having countries as the basis of your sport um you know which is that's a debate in and of itself should we be be national versus you know just clubby but you know if if the road we've gone down is national then we should try and preserve that integrity to some extent um rather than increasing the ability to to have 
you know, across across regional representation. Yeah, I think I I have a slightly different take on it. Not that I disagree semantically with you, but that you know he he has the opportunity now that's been opened up by this law. So um, why not go for it if your career with the All Blacks is over and you can go and replace uh, Disco Diva Nick White uh, at the Wallabies? Why not? <laughs> um, well, maybe yeah, for uh, that reason, I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. less lesser of um, two evils. Yeah, I think we'd all like to see the back of Nick White to Springbok fans. Um, Phil, anything to fill in on that point before we move on? Yeah, just an interesting one. I think TKB was, uh, he mostly played under Dave Rennie for the Chiefs. So just interesting that that sort of club link can oh. happen happen again, you know, for in a completely different, or not completely different, but across the ocean down under there. Um, yeah, I... I wouldn't want to see it happen as well, but again, it's part of the rules now, and that's the way it goes. Just a quick throw out, you know, who, who, which South Africans playing for international teams would you see as coming back to play for the box? Like Hugh, Hugh Jones, maybe, as an understudy to Damien de Allender, I don't know. Any any other mentionable players? Um, Paul Williams, I wouldn't mind. He's yeah, pretty decent. Yeah. I mean, I would uh, think probably a lot of people would claim for Duan, but I don't think he's particularly high on my list of players I'd want back. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think who, most, who the standouts are, like most of the things. players that we let go, you know, generally weren't good enough to make Springboks for a reason. So I think someone who became like properly world-class who's not playing anymore but cj stander um mm. he he wasn't considered and he decided to go to munster because of his size or whatever the issues were but he is one player who did leave and become like proper world-class i think most of the others are sort of bubbling under at best so yeah. we Just generally have would be nice <laughs> yeah that classic joe bird boy <laughs> or, um, or, or my favorite draft player wes Horson. come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he could fill a hole of fourteen for us at the moment. He I mean, definitely could. I mean, the people always seem to mention that Mark Talea has some South African links, and he would be a, also an, a good fourteen option for us to have. But I, I don't think there's any interest from his side. <laughs> well, or from Jacques Nienob's side, who continues to play fullbacks at uh, right wing. Um, we'll get into that. Uh, then there's been some uh, significant action over in Los Angeles. Uh, Phil, you're going to fill us in on the sevens. And I totally didn't mean to say fill us in. It just came off the tongue and I realized how it sounded when it came out. But give us the lowdown. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's pretty disappointing from a South African perspective. Once again, um, going into the tournament just uh, with a fate in our own hands and just needing a positive result. But on the first day not making the cup quarterfinals. So I believe we're about to play Wales in the like bottom playoff in about half an hour, an hour or so. Um, but basically it puts, uh, this is the last series in the, or the last tournament in the series. So it looks like one of Australia or Argentina, or I think possibly Fiji are gonna take it now. Um, and losing to USA in the first match, like it was a bit of a tough group having New Zealand and USA in the you know in your group but still losing two out of three uh it's just not good enough and disappointing anything to add and did you catch some of the games yeah i did um and it was, yeah, it was just we, we came out the blocks very slowly 
Um, I mean, we scored like a consolation try right at the end of the, the um, USA game, and you know that's just not how you play sevens. Um, so yeah, it was it was disappointing after you know maybe the first the start of the series where we won four tournaments back to back and then kind of just imploded on ourselves. But luckily, we built enough of a lead. But yeah, slowly since then we've just been very very poor. Managed to like put together a really nice tournament. Um, for the Commonwealth, and I thought that was kind of the turning point that, like, you know, maybe we were doing some player development and we did have a lot of serious injuries, so, you know, we could kind of lean on that as an excuse, but, you know, getting to this point where, in a must-win competition, in theory, like, just falling over completely is, is really not nice to see. Um, yeah, it was, it was disappointing. Yeah, it's just been a weekend of disappointment between the sevens, fifteens, and even the cricket against England. So, <laughs> not great from a South African supporter point of view. Then uh, there's been some significant movement on the IRB uh, World Rugby logs for the men's international teams. Of course, after some unexpected or uh, some some results that didn't go the way of the log positioning, uh, there's been some chopping and changing. And you got some updates for us there. Yeah, it's been a, a big weekend of moves on the, on the log front. Um, that I think Australia being ranked so far below South Africa, um, despite their home advantage, they gained 1.31 points. Um, so they're sitting up just under 83 now. And Argentina, because they played away from home and beat New Zealand, who are significantly higher ranked, uh, they gained almost two points. So they've both climbed. Australia's climbed a place from seven to six. Argentina's climbed from ninth up to seventh. They're 0.01 points away between each other. South Africa's hanging on to third, um, but only just above England now. New Zealand have dropped to yet another record low, down to fifth. Um, so essentially the logs now kind of split with France and Ireland sitting up quite high, just at 90 and just below. Then you've got South Africa, England, New Zealand are all around 86-ish, as of 3, 4, 5. And then between Australia and Wales, there's also only about a ranking point in the bit um, between sixth and ninth. So there are kind of those three blocks of teams, um, but it is nice to see Wales down in ninth. That always always gives me a smile. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's just incredibly close. So what happens next week is is all up to play for. Um, New Zealand win, they'll probably won't get enough points to go back above England, so they're probably stuck at fifth unless they win by 15. Australia can't really go anywhere apart from down. Um, this is too big a gap ahead of us, um, ahead of them. But we can definitely, if we lose next week, we'll also drop down a place, um, or potentially two places, which is yeah, boring. If, if New Zealand win and we lose, I think we could go down to, to fifth, um, which would be yeah, very poor given we started the year at first. Yeah, and it opens up some, some interesting... Uh some interesting aspects for the November or end of year tours to to Europe from the Southern Nations and uh, going into games where France, Ireland, England um, and definitely not Wales are going to be the favourites for some of the matchups. Uh, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. I mean, usually we we go up there and it's, you know, can can they overcome the Southern Hemisphere, you know, who've been the powerhouse of world rugby, but at the moment, the power is firmly sitting, it seems, with the, the northern hemisphere. I know the, the, the world rugby rankings are not the ideal setup to measure form and, and you know, recent ability, but uh, yeah, it's just a different change in a shift in the powers, I guess. Are you sensing that, Phil? 
Yeah, um, I am. And I think even looking further ahead than November, just to the World Cup next year and how normally, especially between World Cups, um, New Zealand are, you know, so far ahead or at least tie with like us or sometimes Ireland have been looking good. But right now for the first time, well, first time ever, obviously it's New Zealand's lowest ranking, but them being low and France and Ireland being high is just all a bit different. So going into the World Cup, I think it shows that, um, yeah, it's up to maybe seven or eight. Maybe that's a bit optimistic, but maybe like four or five teams are very easily, you know, jostling for favorites. I think France with the home advantage and, you know, currently number one, they will be the favorites, but they are not known for their sort of consistency and being able to, um, put things together all the, that well at World Cup, so we'll see how it goes. I think it it speaks to what will hopefully be a super exciting World Cup next year. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely any of the top seven teams could could make a, a semi-final um, and then arguably make the final. I don't know if there's... I think the key thing with the World Cup is, I mean, everyone said it for the last little while, but any of the top nine can beat any other of the top nine on their day. The issue is, can you win three in a row? Um, you know, I think the teams that can do that are Ireland, France, South Africa, England, New Zealand. I don't know if Australia, Argentina, Scotland, Wales have the consistency to back up three big performances in a row. So I think that's probably still where you've got the split between you know the five and the four. But I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if any of those nine make the make the semi-finals at least. Um, yeah, you've got to feel that the likes of Scotland, Wales, Argentina have one or two big games in the Metal World Cup and still pose a threat, um, which is exciting for rugby, I think. Um, it's been a something of a monopoly of the Southern Hemisphere with the exception of England until now, but we're seeing a shake-up in world rugby, which, I mean, arguably, um, as Springbok fans, it's not great to admit, but arguably it could be a good thing for rugby worldwide. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, completely. I mean, it's it's as you say, the rugby's been it's always been the draw card of football, and that the World Cup could be won by you know a, a, a large number of teams. I mean, I think it's it's partially just because the sport is a lot more random. Um, you know, if you've got such marginal score lines, like you're going to get a lot more random variation, and when things come down to penalties and stuff like involved. Whereas, but rugby's been, as you say, tradition dominated. You know, South Africa's never not made it out the pools. Neither has you know Australia, New Zealand, etc. Like. The, these teams just will be successful to some extent. Um, and yeah, so, so the fact that you've now got a lot of these these teams coming through and even teams like, you know, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga on, the, on their day, uh, Japan potentially outside of the top 10 can knock over a big guy in, in the pool stages um, really does add a lot of spice. You know? So if you've got a, a Japan knocking over someone in their pool, it puts a whole different perspective on a lot of the, on the challenges and points difference and things like that. So no, it, it definitely does make everything a lot more exciting. Um, the narrower the gaps are between the, the the top teams and and even the middle teams. Yeah, of course, it was remiss of me not to mention Japan in that, considering what they managed to do to the Springboks in Brighton not so long ago, under the rule of Henneke Mayer. But uh, the less we talk about that, the better. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what you're <laughs> <laughs> That didn't happen. Yeah. We've all blocked it out. Um, so let's talk about some other Springbok disappointments, talking of um, underperformances and I guess not surprising results given how much Ant tried to 
undig his hole of saying, you know, we should win, but... Uh, I said but a lot. You said but a lot, and I think you've probably uh, saved yourself some face by doing so, because it was yet again an instance where the Springboks went to Australia uh, with probably a slight favourites tag. I mean, we weren't overwhelming, I think, um, odds to, to beat Australia, but we definitely had a good opportunity uh, given their injuries, given current form, given the fact that we were world champions. Um, and yet again, we find ourselves debating, you know, where it went wrong and why they weren't able to pull this off. So, you know, South Africa going down to Australia, obviously, um, at a point 25-3 down, um, clawing it back to some respectability through a Quacker Smith double, on the bench and we'll talk about the impact of the bench just now but let's get some general thoughts uh, around the game starting with Phil. Uh, just so disappointing I think um, there have been some Springbok games where like everything's gone wrong and it's been a shit game and we've lost and it sucks because we've lost but it always felt like we were gonna lose because we were the just you know clearly the inferior team so I think it's almost more disappointing in a game where you sort of control so much and you dominate possession and you have all these like chances or at least territory in the opposition 22 and you just don't look like you're able to do much with it um and then also not necessarily soft tries giving away soft tries but like tries where they're just able to break through too easily i, I mean i guess that's a soft try but <laughs> I, I i think our tries you know, or the tries from Australia sort of look like they're a bit more planned and well executed in terms of, you know, strike phase and um, thinking, knowing exactly what they're going to do. Whereas ours, I think, are less so. But it's really disappointing to see how easily that they can get through and how toothless um, some of our attack looks. And I think our some of our best play, and I, I think I said on our group, like the most promising thing was some of our sort of link play between our forwards and some of the good lines and um, even the, that, the passing between someone like Um and Ox in the first half. Like, didn't see Um pass to any of the other backs in a similar way. It was, and it was all very loose and like of unstructured play. Um, so I think, yeah, the most disappointing thing for me was just that sort of lack of um, looking like they knew what they were doing, I think, to put it lightly. Yeah, that's, I mean, quite scathing of a professional rugby team. Um, and how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very similar feelings. Like that 20-minute that period or 50-minute period before half time when I mean, we just camped on their line over and over and over. And look, it didn't help that we had a misfiring line out. Who knows? That might have given us the more dominance we want needed uh, or given us an opportunity to set up more that we could get over the line. But yeah, we just looked... Toothless. If we don't have a mall, we don't seem to be able to score unless it comes down to a moment of freak brilliance where Um or Quacha or Vincent Koch somehow breaks the line and, and sets plays away. There's there's no kind of plan to systematically break down a team or use a strike play to break the line and set stuff up. You know, the, the types of plays that Australia did with um, doing a couple of wraparound passes from the, the loose forward, I mean, from the prop, and then do one where you switch it up completely, you know, that type of innovation we're not seeing in our game plan. I don't know if it's because we're deliberately holding stuff back. That was kind of my feeling in the last World Cup that you know we had there was enough evidence that we had those types of plays when we were under pressure. We needed a play, we could pull it out and do it. 
I haven't really seen that this cycle. And I don't know if it's because we're just playing the very long game of holding it back or we just don't have them. And I think, yeah, the more we're not seeing it, the more I'm leaning towards the latter. And as you say, we've got the players that can do cool stuff. Like, if you look at some of the interplay between our forwards, it was insane. You looked at the, what Um can do when he when he's interlinking with other guys. Like, we've got good players that can do stuff. And I don't think, you know, there were a couple of players that, that played really poorly, but a lot of guys still had really good games. Um, you know, so I think we're, we're like 90% of the way there all the time. Um, it's just getting that last 5% to work. But the problem is that last 5%, you know, if you want to use a, a made-up anecdote to say there's 10 things you need to get right in rugby, we're like maybe at 80 90% for nine of the 10 and like 5% <laughs> execution on the last one. Um, and unfortunately, it's that last one that's the one that gives you points. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very frustrating performance when you just don't feel like you can get across the line. Yeah, for me, it, it almost felt like it was more frustrating because we saw what we needed to see in terms of players being able to play the game we needed to beat them and just the execution didn't follow. Like we had utter dominance for the last 25 minutes of the first half and just absolutely couldn't capitalize. I mean, we got over the line with Oxen Chair, but he couldn't get the ball down for some inexplicable reason. Um, and it makes me wonder how much of that is... You know, coming coming from a very green and gold tinted glasses perspective, how much of that is the Springboks' inability to do it, and how much of it was credit to Australia and Laurie Fisher, the new defensive coach, for being able to thwart those Springbok um, attacks? I don't know, Phil, if you have any ideas on on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't think that um, at least in uh, in theory the South African systems are very difficult to stop normally it's you know it's just you know what they're going to do you just struggle to because they're so powerful and they're so big and they're so good at what they're trying to do um so i think if you're not firing on all cylinders then it does become way too predictable and way too easy to stop and and a good defensive coach should be able to figure those sort of things out i think um at my most optimistic you know sort of on on what Ant said in terms of looking forward and having the same sort of coaching setup that was in place for the last World Cup, like hoping and and being optimistic about thinking that, you know, not, not that we're just holding things back, but we're almost trying to expand our game in areas where we're not so good, but because we know that our strengths are ready and we can always revert back to them. I mean, I think if, if you look at sort of the game that someone like Pollard is playing, he's, it almost looks like he's, sometimes he's playing a game that he's not so comfortable with. Like he's, He's moved a, a bit away from some of the, the his sort of more route one ways, which he he has been so successful at. Um, and and yeah, like it, the improved forward play, um, that's great to see. But just some of the basics, which we're, we've known, we, we've seen a bit less of that. So yeah, at my most optimistic, I'm thinking we're holding stuff back. But on a more realistic perspective, I think now is a time that we do actually need to see some sort of change. Um, and I think it's too late to, to do like a major overhaul in terms of coaching setups and anything like that. Not that I, I think that that would be right, but um, like there was a point in before the 2007 World Cup where Jake White had to make the huge call of dropping Devet Barry and Maurice Joubert, who had like served him so well. 
and and then Jean de Villiers and Jacques Fru got like less than two years um, of games before that World Cup together. Um, and I think it was Jakob mm-hmm. Fenderbestes and it was Flauf and they they Butch James came in. But we we don't have those sort of options. But I, I do think that some changes definitely need to happen now. Um, and we, we've discussed it over the last couple of weeks. Um, I think, yeah, I would still want to see Willemsa come in at 12. I think, unfortunately, uh, Dialenda has just not, he hasn't been showing enough for me. So I want to see Willemsa at 12. I'm at 13. We, I, I think Moody at 14. I just want to see a right wing at 14, to be honest. Like, yeah, no, yeah. no more Gallant, no more other, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I definitely don't want to see Willem Souls. I'm not sure. I think for a, at least for a few minutes on Saturday, they, they were willing to put Willem at 14 when they first made those changes. And it was just like, now you're willing to put him at 14 after all the changes that they made in the in the previous match. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think some major shifts are also needed. And to be honest, I still don't understand having Francois Stein. Um, I... I yeah, and even to some extent Dwayne Fumulin, and that might sound quite harsh, but we have better options. We have younger options. I don't think Dwayne Fumulin is showing enough that he should be in the thoughts of at least a starting lineup or even starting 23 position. I think we need to have him more as like in a Skulk Brits role for the World Cup. Do you guys agree with that, or do you think that's a bit too harsh? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think we've faffed around not having a proper left wing, I mean right wing for a couple of weeks now. There is no one else really in the South African system and given they've got Moody in the squad fast in South Africa, throw him in. We can't play Galant there again. Galant's played however many tests in the swing of jersey at 14 quite a lot of them, but even the ones that's played 15 he hasn't delivered at that level. And bring in Moody. Same thing for Dwayne. He's had two tests now, hasn't been really firing. There was an improvement to be fair this week, but Test level is not where you're meant to find your feet. Like, you know, it's, and, I, and the more I think about the Dwayne thing, it doesn't make sense. Like, we know what we have in this as a player. If you can get him to form at, at club level, we don't need to do that at test level. You know, it's not like an Evan Ross or a Lowe where you want to get them used to the intensity. He knows what the intensity of test level is. Get him fit at club level, and then he can make match day, like, sharp match decisions. He doesn't need that at fit test level. Um, you know, the France Dane thing, I, 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 I get that because, you know, we wanted to him, him to play and see if he's got it. But, like, I suppose the same type of thing is if he's, you know, he can do that at, te- at a club level and then you bring it in. You don't bring in these completely unfit players. And I suppose the same thing applied to Yankees in the second, the first, first test against Wales. Applies to Dwebbing, who hasn't had much game time for his club in, in France. Like, why are we throwing all these players that are out of game time by definition, not match sharp? into matches because not a single one of them has stepped up and performed. Um, so now we're in a very, I mean, with Dreda specifically, we're in a really tough position because either he comes off the bench next week, and we, well, either he starts, in which case we're just going to get more of the same. We put him off the bench, in which case we can get the same. It's just going to be in the second half, which doesn't solve anything. Mm-hmm. Or we play Dion Free and expect him to come off the bench and somehow throw it. It's just, you know, it's not like set piece was ever Dion Free's um, strength either. So, yeah, it feels like leaving Johan Frober at home was a, a big mistake. Um, not sure if there's any plans to fly him out or maybe at least meet us in Argentina or something, but it's 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 a worrying position to be in with some of the selections they've made. But yeah, I think I think for next week, bringing Willems at 12 or SAS at 12 gives someone else a shot there. Dylan, he hasn't been firing. Um, you know, Fuff needs to, to take another rest. Um, Jaden must play. Bring Moody in at, at 14 and put... Um, Either Willem or, or, or Villiers fullback. Um, 
and then in the forwards, you know, play Quaja or, or Visa at eight, and bring Lowe onto the bench. Like Dwayne is, yeah, can't can't play in the team because he's not an impact player off the bench. So, yeah, I think it's it's fortunately fairly straightforward, I suppose, in a way, given the options we've got available. But like, yeah, what will the coaches do to make that happen? Yeah, it sounds sounds pretty much like from both of you that you are tired of the Erasmus Nienabe experiments at test level, given that it's now starting to, to impact our results and Nienabe's win rate is starting to drop uh, perilously low on the back of a few of these defeats. And it's demoralizing for the Springbok supporters and we, we sympathize and understand that the World Cup is the um the end goal but it's not the be all and end all um you can't be uh world champions and then not perform for the four years in between um and it's also not how you build a winning side and uh, not winning games um so definitely disappointing and we've pointed fingers at some of the players that need to be pointed at and made some harsh judgments i think on those guys like pollard you know, pollard he, he's won us games against new zealand and he scored doubles against New Zealand when he was like 21, 22. I just don't see him scoring tries in the box setup at the moment. He's sitting so deep in the pocket and just shoveling the ball on. I mean, he's not a bad distributor and he's a good kicker and all of that. Um, he wasn't such a good kicker this last weekend. Um, and Dalendi is like very predictable these days. And I think they rushed up on him and cut down his momentum and stopped us in our tracks and we were backtracking the entire time every time he got the ball he made one or two nice late contributions as did Sia Kulisi once the game was already beyond us um but yeah just overall really really disappointing knowing we have the players we have the skills and abilities to to win these kinds of games and we should be winning these kinds of games and we can um but we aren't and it's getting increasingly frustrating um Phil you mentioned Butch James uh, and his selection back then um, with Jacques Free and Jean de Villiers. And I watched the, the halftime uh, commentary mm-hmm. by Pundits, and Butch James is raving about the cover defence of Marika Korobete, who arguably was man of the match. But that was one moment where people felt like, well, Springbok fans at least, who were uh, grasping at straws, were saying that Korobete didn't wrap his arms and took out Mapimpi, given he did jump at least or slightly. Um, and there's been a whole outcry around the refereeing in this game, um, having, I think it was Jordan Way uh, as the referee and his. Paul Williams, I think. Paul, Paul Williams. Um, sorry, Paul Williams. Raiden something was the Timo. Sorry, Jordan, I know he's a listener. Um, and having, there were, there were a few instances <laughs> around that. And one of them was obviously the the. Nick White, Faf de Klerk, handbags, uh, which we'll talk about now, but um, and perhaps your opinions on the Korobete cover tackle uh, to prevent Mapimpi from scoring in the corner, just as a key moment of the match? Yeah, so I mean, look, it was obviously a key moment of the match. I mean, we score there, and then I think it's 10 5 if we get the kick, or 10 8, um, depending if we get the kick or not. Um, you know, and obviously. If, if it's a yellow card, it's even more influential. Um, you know, I think the first thing is just Marika has benefited massively um, by Chica forcing him to work double the amount of any other wing during rugby matches. So now he's just used to it, just sprinting everywhere. Um, and it, you know, he's very effective at it. Was the, the, the tackle illegal? Personally, I don't 
think so. I think there was enough of an attempted rap that it would have been legal. And I think the key issue, and probably like the thing that makes it look bad, was that you know, Mipimbi did kind of jump. Um, and so that, you know, he was, Corin uh, wasn't able to get his arm around the player because he kind of slid off the shoulder. I think had it, had he stayed on his feet, it would have been perfectly fine. So I, I don't think it was an issue. Um, that being said, on a different day, different ref, very easily could have been a yellow card. Um, and I think it, it is a weird one, but to pin that moment on the ref um, and to pin the loss on, on the ref's no call there is, I feel like, as you say, grasping at straws a little bit. Um, but you're happy to, to, to be challenged on that. Well, should, should the TMO have had a proper look at it? Because we saw the TMO getting involved later on in the game in the the supposed knockdown by Nola Lolisio, and it was after the conversion had been taken already, wouldn't have affected the try. Um, the only possible outcome would have been a yellow card, which, given the footage, was like highly dubious. Um, should the TMO have had another look at that, do you feel? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, firstly, just what on earth was the TMO getting involved for that knockdown? As you say, like way after the play, completely didn't affect anything. It's just, it was weird, a weird thing to do and intervene on. Um, and from all reports, the people of the crowd was just like very confused because they just lost three minutes of, of time kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. But yes, I think, I mean, I think the team definitely should have checked it. Like, you know, I mean, just, particularly just the way that Mapindi fell, you know, that would have warranted a TMO check any other time. You know, it doesn't, you know, they, they normally look at like severity of outcome and that kind of justifies their, their influence. Um, so no, they, they should have checked it. I don't think it necessarily was. Well, I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with it, but yeah, given given the roles and responsibilities of the TMO, it's definitely something they should have looked at. So Phil, you you think um, shoulder charge, yellow card, penalty try, right? <laughs> I I think it sort of like Ant said, it could have easily gone that way. To be honest, it was one of those which the worst thing about it was that it had such a a big impact on the match in terms of that particular decision like you say if it resulted in a penalty try it would have it could have potentially been a minimum seven point swing and that makes it become a much bigger issue than it really was but the decision in itself to be honest i think i at least when i first saw it at least on the replay i thought that looks illegal that doesn't look like he's tried to rap and he hasn't done enough um and I think that if the referee, for example, had given it as a penalty or a penalty try and then they had gone to the TMO, I don't necessarily think the TMO then would have, you know, like in football and the VAR, how they sort of have to have compelling evidence or, right, you know. Right. So I, I think it's that close of a decision where it's like you sort of go with that, what the ref initially thinks. And it's not as strong in rugby, of course, like TMOs are a lot more willing to overturn the on-field refs. But... So I I think that I yeah like I said I initially thought that there wasn't enough rap and I was like shit that should be a penalty and if it's a penalty then he was the last man and whatever else comes with it but at the same time um, you know watching the replay seeing the other sort of factors involved you know whether it's the sort of attempted rap or whether it's the slight little bit of a jump even if I mean, some people seem to think there was no jump at all, but all the other factors sort of, you know, 
make it seem to me like it's not a bad decision, but it's such a close one that, of course, if you're on the wrong end of it, you're going to be a little bit frustrated. And unfortunately, with yeah, like I said, with the importance of the decision and the swing that goes with it, it becomes amplified in terms of its, its importance. Mm. And perhaps another big moment of the match, I won't say an important one because I don't really think it would have affected the outcome as much as the Corabetta tackle, but the altercation between uh, Faf and Nick White. Attempted murder, you mean? Attempted murder. Uh, clearly, Ant's got some strong feelings, so I'll throw it to him first. But essentially, Faf de Klerk swiping at the ball, missing and striking Nick White in the face. I think that's all factual up to this point, but you know, we, we, we're entering into uh, controversial territory here. Um, and I don't think White, it's necessarily factual. I mean, Faf saw that he had, like, you know, he, he, he got a bit excited at the last um, rock. He'd blown his nose. Some of it was still sticking in his moustache. And he was just trying to clean his moustache for him. You know, we know how much pride Nick White places in his moustache. He said categorically he won't shave it off for charity, even if there's a million children dying from cancer. So, you know, that's the kind of moustache envy we're looking at. So we have to make sure that we keep that. That was a factual statement, by the way. Um, he is on record saying that. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, if the, the first question is what on earth is Fuff is doing, you're not allowed to slap the ball out of someone's hands. Like, That's for me the first, it's just, the first thought is what just are you what? trying yeah. to achieve? Um, and then, yeah, and the problem is this is just classic Fuff. I feel like he's he's got, he just has these moments, or at least in the last year, of just like blatant brain fades. Like that was just a stupid thing to do. The fact that he then ended up connecting with the face, um, you know, that, I mean, like, I could see it maybe with Nigel Owens, he might have just let it be a penalty or just a play on, just being like, don't be a silly boy or something. But, like, you know, he made contact with the face, yellow card, that's kind of is what it is. But it's just stupid from Fuff. Um, you know, we can talk about the, the acting from Nick White, which was, you know, probably the bigger issue. I mean, I don't think that too many people have, have an issue with the yellow card necessarily itself, but like the whole kind of clutching for your face and falling to the ground in agony as if you've been, you know, sliced um, was a bit ridiculous. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the, the type of antics we don't really want to see creeping into rugby. Um, there have been one or two other players that have done in the past and they've been also slammed for it. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the bigger issue is, is Nick White's reaction, which was very much obviously out of proportion and, and purely to to try and gain a, a penalty. Yeah, and <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what the rules are specifically around spirit of the game and things like that and how that factors into decisions on the field. But, I mean, Phil, did you think Nick White went completely over the top or did he I, get caught unawares, getting slapped in the face and he had a justified reaction? No, I, I, I think that... Um he went over the top. I think my preferred outcome, in hindsight, of course, um, is that it would have been a penalty against Faf because I was dumb. I don't even think, to be honest, it was worth a yellow card. Like, yes, it's a strike to the face, but even a strike is like pushing it to the extreme. And it was dumb and it was stupid and he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. But I don't think it's like worth a yellow card. And maybe maybe they're going to you know make the rules around around that a little bit clearer but i i also think that um nick white should have got some sort of warning and like you said i don't know what the rules are in terms of the spirit of the game but you know if it was nigel owens or someone maybe it would have been different but like you don't want that and the sort of 
potential long-term precedent that it sets. Um, I saw someone making, or I don't know if someone, uh, there was a comparison to, you know, Nick White getting uh, his, uh, I think it was Ellis Genge in the English series where uh, Genge was a bit heavy handed on him and nothing happened. And, you know, like that sort of thing of, well, if you don't um, milk it, then you sometimes you don't even get a penalty or something like that, which is sort of what happens in football, why people Mm. dive and simulate to the extent that they do, because otherwise, if you try and stay on your feet, then you don't always get a free kick or a penalty or whatever. So it's such a fine line and they need to be pretty hard and fast with what, how they want to treat it now. Otherwise it's a slippery slope and like, it will become the sort of thing that we do see in football where any head contact, even if it's like, you know, just people coming together and like squaring up to each other and then someone leans forward and someone falls to the ground and then they get a red card for that. Like, I think that's where you don't want to come from or don't don't want to go to, sorry. And um, yeah, I think, so they do need to be pretty clear of how to treat this now. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think it is probably against the spirit of the game and, like sure you get hurt, but you carry on playing until the whistle, and that's generally the generally the approach. And I don't think he did that. And I think he's going to cop some flag from it from supporters in Oz and in South Africa. But on the whole, actually, not in defence of Nick White, but uh, to balance the argument, I actually think I understand why Australia are playing him against. Uh, sorry, over Tate McDermott. I was watching the the highlights back after the game, uh, punishing myself. And the first try in that first, you know, 90 seconds or whatever it was, there were something like 11, 12 phases that Australia had the ball and they were making consistent ground um, close in to, to the breakdown point. And there was only one phase through that whole um, play that went through the hands of Noel Olesio as the playmaker. Everything else came off Nick White. And they're, they've played a lot like that at the moment, the the, the Wallabies. Not a lot goes yeah. through their 10. I don't know if that's because they don't trust their 10s. And if so, you know, if, if Nick White is the, the, the designated playmaker, then it was harsh to sack James O'Connor on the back of them being clunky in uh, Dave Rennie's words in, in Argentina. Uh, and, uh, or I don't know if now Nick White is more involved because Lolicio is young and they're protecting him um, against being uh, targeted. But I, I thought Lolicio had actually a, a pretty good game, but I thought Nick White actually controlled things very nicely for Australia from the base. Yeah, look, Nick White is a good player, and I think having that that partnership makes sense. There was arguments that they, I heard people saying that, like, in Argentina they should have played Tate with James, because then again, at least you've got that club familiarity again, coming back to rugby eight. We all know that having... Um, uh, cohesion right. is a very important thing in, in any rugby team. Um, so selecting club base does have its advantages. So, but yeah, it is weird that you know, if, as you say, if you're running a, running all your plays through nine, and then you sack your ten for the players not working. I think there were fundamental things that James Conner maybe just did wrong. Um, he, like some of the analysis I saw, they played, and he was just clearing rucks the whole game, the whole like ten phases or something. You know, so at least if you're going to be a 10, you don't have to t- take the ball on every play, but you need to be an option because um, that's kind of your, the point of view. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the mind of Dave Rennie and exactly what prompted the selection, the, the, the deselection of, of um, James Conner, but it did certainly seem that Lovacier looked a lot more comfortable outside Nick White and looked very comfortable in this game. Um, so, 
you know, maybe they've they've finally kind of settled it and they're going to give him a decent run. As we said last week, he kind of gets picked and dropped at will. Um, so yeah, it's, it's Nick White as annoying as he is is very effective. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, looking forward to to next week. Then we've talked about some of the changes. Um, I'm hearing that you guys don't really back Dwayne for another week, and if he's not going to play starting the game, then he probably doesn't deserve a place on the bench as an impact player. He's not really a typical bomb squad uh, member. Um, so looking forward, I mean, one of the big question marks is Hooker, obviously. Uh, Joseph Dweber started the game. His first uh, impact on the game was a, a skew line-out throw, which sort of set the tone. And he went off for a head injury after a few minutes and brought Malcolm Marks on, who, who made, I thought, an, an immediate impact. Um, compared to, to Dweber, and then Dweber came back on for a while, and then Marks replaced him eventually as part of the bomb squad in the normal uh, situation. Um, he now, in, in two weeks, has flattered to deceive. He still looks off the pace, and um, yeah, it, it doesn't seem to be looking like he's on a trajectory at all. What do we do with him next week? Do we bring, do we, do we start Marks and satisfy everyone um, back home on Twitter? And do we do we then bring in Dion Ferry on the bench and perhaps use his inclusion to go to a, a six-two again? I don't know if you want to put Dion Ferry on the bench and then not play him at hooker and bring him on as an extra Lucy. Um, it would be pretty pretty radical of the Springboks to do that, but it is an option given his sort of history. Um, or do we stick with Dweber and give him? Uh, like I said on the group, sort of a third chance, uh, three strikes and you're out situation. Like you've got to pull your socks up this week or or yeah. be forced to drop you. Well, I mean, Bongi can't be too far off coming back either. Let's just keep that in mind. I think the issue is that, you know, I mean, Dion Ferris played hooker even further back um, or less recently than Dweber. So, and as I said, even then he was, that was never, his strength was like set piece and life So, I think we've got to, we've got to stick with Dweber, but maybe we, we play him off the bench um, and we say kind of like, but yeah, not bomb squad style, like 65th minute like situation where hopefully he doesn't get too many lineouts. Because his general play hasn't been bad. It's predominantly just his, his lineouts. So I think maybe that's the thing. If you Look, it does blunt marks significantly if you start him and then say, you know, you have to go for 70 minutes as opposed to 40. Um but yeah, I think that's probably the safer option just to shore up our lineup. So yes, we'll do some impact during the field, but but we'll at least have a lineup that we can attack from. So I think that's that's probably the play. Switch the two around just to get the more stable set piece for the majority of the game. Yeah, interestingly, um, Montoya for Argentina played I think 79 minutes on the weekend. So Marks yeah, also had Marks, a rough rookie on the bench though. Yeah, but I mean, just still like Marks to me doesn't seem like the sort of guy who's losing his impact after 50 minutes. So like you say, if it's 65 minutes and less of the, the traditional bomb squad thing that we have worked for so long, I think that still works, starting marks and letting him play more of the game than usually the bomb squad system would allow. I just yeah. don't think there are any real other options. I know you mentioned Dion Free, but I'm not even really considering it. Um, no, I, I but, I agree. So just given the, the makeup of the squad for now, um, like maybe maybe on the return legs we can think of other options. Just on on that, I saw there was a a report in 
the report um, about Johan Krobler. Apparently, the Springbok coaches and setup want him to put on a bit of bulk before he gets considered, like at least like five to ten kilograms or something. So they just consider him too lightweight, apparently. Sure, that's a bit cool. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see when the, the team sheets are released. I would be surprised to see Kane and Moody on the right wing as much as I would like to see him there because they have taken JC Creel with them to Australia. So if the intention wasn't to play JC Creel, why take him why take him there? Sure. Um, so we'll we'll see what, what crops up next week and no doubt talk about it and uh, question decisions and applaud where where necessary. But um, yeah, I guess there, there was another game that we should talk about before our hour is up and we've been talking about this game for a long time. I think there's still a lot to be said, but you know, when, when, are, when are South Africa going to reclaim their defensive system, for instance? But uh, yeah, the, the other game was potentially more exciting for us given, you know, I think we're all cheering for, for South Africa and anyone who's playing the All Blacks. So it was great to see Argentina pull off, I think, what can still be called an upset win, even though they seem to be a team on the up. Um, is this, uh, in, a, in a more philosophical sense, the Argentinian team becoming that first-tier professional nation that, that we always knew they could be? Or is this the regression of New Zealand rugby, or both, or neither of those? Uh, we'll throw it to Phil first. I think the the easy answer and probably the correct one, but it might lean a certain way, is somewhere in between. Uh, the all-black regression, I think, has been pretty obvious, whether you're just looking at the rankings or whether you're looking at performances themselves. Argentina have, at the same time, been growing, but I, I don't think that they played the most amazing game yesterday. Their defensive game was really good. That was, like, the standout point, I think, just being able to not allow the All Blacks to really play too much, especially given the amount of ball that they had. Um, Possession-wise, the All Blacks, I think it was 60-something percent, which is pretty crazy by any uh, sort of closer international standard. Um, and even, I think, meters carried, the All Blacks had more than double and that sort of thing. But uh, Argentina were able to just, you know, not allow them to really break through and do much. So... Yeah, definitely somewhere in between. But, I mean, you can't... I, not trying to take away anything from Argentina's performance. It was, yeah, historical. Their first ever win in New Zealand and pretty amazing. So, it was exciting too. Yeah, look, I think I think New Zealand definitely... I mean, I don't know how much it was New Zealand, uh, Argentina not letting New Zealand play or New Zealand just reverting to a very, very, very simple game plan. I mean, we were looking at it in real time and going through some of the replays and stuff um, and some analysis on Twitter kind of confirmed it. But their strategy seemed to be throw up a one-up runner four or five times in a row and then swing it wide and hope for the best. And yes, they were doing that for 15 phases, but if you've got a super aggressive line speed and no variation in your attack, and people with as much energy and fitness and just passion as Argentina do for making your day horrible, they're going to hold you. Um, and, you know, so, yes, New Zealand were going through 15 phases, but they weren't making any ground because they were just being knocked behind the advantage line. Um, so, they, you know, they, there was no kind of tip-off passing or anything, no trying to confuse who is going to make the tackle. Um, and they just they were getting slammed backwards. So, yeah, I think... 
yeah, full credit to, to, to Argentina for handling it. Um, you know, they made what had a 96% tackling rate or something ridiculous. But New Zealand also didn't challenge them, I think, that much. Um, you know, they weren't trying to make things difficult to to defend. Um, but again, full credit to, for, 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 to Argentina for hanging it in there. Um, you know, New Zealand did get a bit of a lead. They scored a classic 60-meter try or turnover. Um, and, you know, Argentina had to pull their way back into the game and kind of grind their way in. And, you know, the fact that they did it with eight penalties, you know, shows that they had enough field position and that they converted when they needed to, as opposed to New Zealand with, you know, 65% possession. But, you know, one long-range scoring opportunity, I'm trying to remember the other try now, but, you know, they they didn't do much with their possession. Um, it also helped that they missed a couple of goals where, where Argentina was six out of six. But I think what, what, what did stand out for me is looking at the stats, Yes, New Zealand ran for 500 and Argentina ran for 300 or whatever it was, but New Argentina kicked for like 750 or something. So their total meters up the field was a good couple of hundred meters more than the All Blacks. Um, I don't know if that's a stat that anyone's ever looked at, but if you combine that, you know, kind of up the field uh, meterage, it, it, you know, New Zealand, uh, Argentina were, were quite far ahead. So yeah, it was look, it was a brilliant performance by, by Argentina, and I think they've. Yeah, are maturing as a side. Um, I think the Chica influence is helping them a lot. But yeah, at the same time, New Zealand, you know, they had one win against us, which, as I said last two weeks ago, I don't think was as spectacular as everyone was making out to be. Um, you know, they were still very rusty against us. We just happened to be poorer. Um, this kind of week's shown that that like New Zealand are still not a good. So they're not suddenly back to being the the dangerous team of 2015 because they beat us once. Um, you know, us losing Australia also probably shows that we're not <laughs> um, not the team that, that maybe we people thought we were. Yeah, I think there were going to be a lot of people questioning that decision to keep Ian Foster on <laughs> a week after he loses to Argentina at home. Um, so some definitely definite question marks in that All Blacks camp, and they didn't they didn't change around their selection very much at all after we sort of what agreed was a. An underwhelming tour to South Africa, despite the win, which uh, was, again, not their best performance. So still many things to work on in that All Blacks camp. And as it stands, the Springboks are one for two and the All Blacks are one for two. And we have Argentina and Australia leading the uh, rugby championship log. And there's been, you know, intimations made in the press by Jacques Nianaba that he's considering a very set, a very different and separate squad to go to Argentina or to at least play Argentina in South Africa and in Argentina. Is that the right decision, given that Argentina seemed to be a team on the up, Phil? Um, are we feeling confident playing the likes of Alric Ruiz and Evan uh, and, and Evan <laughs> and, and others? You know, Damien Willemse at 12 outside, Elton perhaps to give Pollard a break. Playing the likes of someone, sure. right? Um, sure, sure. No, what what are we going to do against Argentina and, and is Not it the right Alton, time? Now? I think is let's just underline that. Well, um, <laughs> like I said earlier, I think at some point changes are needed, and that should all come into it. And to be completely honest, I'm not like expectancy-wise, I'm not expecting massive changes this week, but for the home, I don't know if the home matches before the away match uh, against Argentina. Away first, I think. But even on the away match, like if the changes have to happen then, I, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Arachlo start at eight ahead of like Visa maybe, but 
these guys do need some game time at some point, and yeah, I mean, I think one of those games it will happen where you know some of the guys who haven't been given as much game time will get, and I think they need it. So I think even if the sort of rugby championship is in the balance, I would still want it to happen. All right, and I, I, I'm not sure is is Andre Estes with the squad in Australia at the moment? Yes. He is. I mean, so that uh, possibly before they play, Damien Willems said they they may play Andre Esterhazen, um, given that Damien Willems is. I mean, Damien Delend. I'm getting mixed yeah. up. My Damien's here is uh, <laughs> is not really impressing that much. I mean, he's not done a whole lot wrong, but he's just not really put his hand up, has he? Yeah, look, we need to develop our options anyway. Then um, I suppose the same could be said for Am, but at least Am is performing, and we really don't have an option outside of him. Um, so yeah, I think I think trying out either Willemster and Villy at the back, or playing Esther Hazen to give him a shot is not a good, it's not, not a bad shot. I'd like to see it happen just because I think it would be be good to expose the squad to that, and I don't think we'd, we'd lose much. You know, it's not like we, as I said, if we replace Um, then we lose quite a bit. Um, if you replace him out of sorts and iffy Damien, you know, it's not like the drop off's going to be huge. Um, so I don't think we we lose much, and I think we we stand to gain. Um, at the very least, by just getting some more experience into the squad. The same thing for for loose forwards. I think you know playing Visa, getting him another test cap under his belt, or getting low on. Um, what do you guys think about the option of maybe playing low at blindside instead of Peter Steff, and then consisting with with Visa and and Khaleesi? That's quite a nice dynamic loose trio. I think Peter Steff. Um, he definitely hasn't been bad. And he's one of those players who sometimes it's hard to sort of gauge his impact just because he's traditionally, you know, you're not going to really look at his tackle stats or even completion rate or that sort of thing. You sort of see the physical impact. Um, Andrew, I think, like you said, in one of the other tests where, you know, just harassing the scrum off or, and like making his life a misery, that sort of thing is more of his role. But I, I, I would say that rotation is needed there. He doesn't have to play every single game. So I think Elrochlo is very possibly suited to playing that blindside role too. So yeah, I would like to see him. Um, I know you scoffed at the suggestion of playing Elton and just now, but I still, and I, it saddens me to say because they're both getting old and they're both not at their peak anymore. But I, I, I still think that the back line is just a bit too... I don't know if static's the right word, or it's just not, it doesn't function well enough when you don't have either Elton or Vili playing. And I think Pollard, like Andrew, you were saying, he stands so deep, and when he passes, it's just too sideways. And I know Elton didn't make too much of an impact this weekend, but when he did come on, one of the first things that he did was take the ball flat and then pass to a forward. And then he took the ball flat and ran himself. And in and those then he two. conceded the penalty on the floor. He did, he did concede the penalty, yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> so, so there was that negative impact, yes, of course. But it was more of like the intention and just something. And maybe it was because, you know, coming on the bench and trying to at least make a difference. But it's just frustrating, especially because I think also, like you said, Andy, the. We know Pollard has the sort of all the ability to play at a certain level, but he seems to be like playing within himself at the moment, and that's really frustrating. Yeah. All right. So we we've talked about uh, this past weekend. We talked about what we'd like to see next weekend. I don't think we'll get another pod in before uh, next weekend. So I guess we've got to do some long-term predictions. Um, and will the box be able to get the selections right? And will we be able to pull off our first win in Australia since 2013 next week on the bounce back? 
I think that first question is a lot harder than the second question. Um, I don't know if we're going to get all the selections right. I don't know if, if you know was brave enough to make those. I hope we get some of them right. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not optimistic, but I reckon we'll see a double bounce back. I see. Bo I reckon Box and uh, New Zealand will win this week. Um, so we have a very tight table after four rounds, with still very much everyone's game going into the last couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people are kind of saying. South Africa would win one of these games. Uh, they wouldn't win both. So I think most people thought it would be the second one we lose, but who knows? Maybe maybe giving the first one was the loss, and now we win the second. Um, that's that's at least what I'm hoping for. So yeah, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Australia, Australia and Argentina to lose, and us being tied up on on two wins each across the board. Interesting, Phil. Do you agree with that? Um, I think I do. I'm very hesitant just because. I think last week we said South Africa and New Zealand would win, <laughs> and <laughs> obviously all, all, all three of us, and it didn't quite uh, work out that way. And I feel like we might say the same thing again this week, and I just don't want to see the same. I just want an improved performance, to be honest. Even if South Africa lose by one or two, like just show us that it's working a bit better, that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I agree with that. <laughs> South Africa, New Zealand wins all the way. I'm I'm gonna go three for three here. I saw enough from the Springboks and enough from the All Blacks to convince me that they've still got what it takes to to pull off the wins, even if it's up against them. So I'm gonna go for bounce back wins as well. I guess we will either be eating humble pie or saying I told you so um, on our next episode. But guys, we're coming up to our hour, so I'm gonna wrap it up there. Thanks. It's been a a real ple pleasure and a privilege. Any passing shots from either of you before we wrap up? Um, Ant? I'm just glad I don't have to wake up at 7 o'clock on a Saturday to watch rugby this time. It'd be nice to have a slow start to the morning. Silver linings. Uh, Phil? Yeah, just it looks like the Sevens are still losing to Wales in that bottom quarterfinal. So let's just leave this week behind us and move on to bigger and better things next weekend. Yeah. <laughs> On that very positive note, we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll chat to you again next week. Cheers.